Um, if you're here last week, Todd started off the new semester. He didn't even actually preach or teach, rather, in the, the Psalter. He taught on John chapter 15, if you were here. And his point was to remind us of what this whole thing's about, what Amen's about. And he told us that the point of Amen is not about the delicious breakfast that Miss Kim and her staff cook for us every Thursday, though we are thankful for that. Uh, the purpose is not even really our fellowship or to hear a good talk, hopefully to hear a good talk, although those are blessings and are important. The purpose of Amen, right, is discipleship. That we gather all the nuggets of truth and gold that we are hearing in here and move it down into our hearts where we live that out together as brothers. And it's a privilege to be able to do that with you. And that is our hope as today we get back into the Psalter and look at one of my very favorite chapters, Psalm 46. Go ahead and turn there. Um, if you are turning there, just to remind you, uh, when George started this series, he gave a lot of reasons of why he wanted to study the Psalms. A lot of reasons. Uh, the most important reason for my mind is, is that this hymn book of God gives us words for life. There are many times in our life when things happen to us or happen to those that we love that leave us speechless. You know, things we uh, can't understand, things that make us uh, not really sure of how we're supposed to respond to them or what we're supposed to say to God, and certainly uh, we're not sure what to pray for. There's many times in life that are like that. Uh, God's hymn book gives us words for such occasions. Sometimes it gives us words for the highest experience that we can have in the Christian life. Just the chapter before 46, 45, it talks about the highest experience that we will experience as God's people, that, that wedding feast that Jesus will have with his bride, the church, you and I, and the new heavens and the new earth, something that we could barely even wrap our minds around, yet God's word gives us words of praise and thanksgiving for that. More commonly, the Psalter gives us words for seasons of trouble. And chapter 46 is one of those examples. I think it's important that we understand the context of chapter 46 so we can begin to wrap our mind of what's going on. Uh, scholars somewhat differ on what was going on behind this, but most people uh, uh, agree that when the writer writes chapter 46... He is referring back to the second greatest act of God's deliverance in the Old Testament. We know what the first great act is, the Exodus account. We don't hear so much about the second great act of God's deliverance. When God rescued Israel during the time of King Hezekiah from the Assyrian invasion led by their ruler, Sennacherib. If you remember your Old Testament history, that was a very perilous time for the Jews. It was scary. Uh, there was no army like Assyria in the time. There was no ruler that matched the ruthlessness of Sennacherib. They conquered nation after nation. They butchered thousands. And now they're on the front doorstep of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, as we see in 2 Kings chapter 20 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32, comes to Hezekiah and says, Hey, I'm going to spare you and your people if you submit to me, but don't you dare defy me. I will ruin you. And he had plenty of evidence to back up his threat. Now, we're told that Hezekiah doesn't respond immediately. And you can imagine the things that he might have been thinking. I'm the king of God's people. How in the world did it come to this? Has God abandoned me? Has God abandoned his people? What is to become of God's kingdom and his people? We would have thought those things. Hezekiah eventually did respond. And this is how he responded. He immediately went into the temple. He unlocked his mind and his heart. 
And he laid bare all the things that worried him, all the things that kept him up with worry before the Lord, and he prayed. Y'all remember what he prayed? The first thing he said, he, he did not cry for help, by the way, that we might. We might cry to the Lord when we're in a, a precarious situation like that. God, please deliver me. Please rescue me. Why am I here? Rescue me. There's nothing wrong in praying that, but that's not what Hezekiah prayed. What's the first thing that he did? He prayed the attributes of God back to God. He just spent time recounting who God was. He said, God, God, you are, you are majestic. You are, you are sovereign over all the nations. Your power knows no end. It, it's, it, there's, it's second to none. It's, it's matchless, your power. And he starts recounting his righteousness, his, 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 his justice, all the attributes of God. He started recounting them. And as he recounted and prayed back the attributes of God to God, it was then that he remembered all the things that God had already done for his people. And as he remembered all the things that God had already done for his people, that produced for him a defiant faith in the present. It is that rhythm, that model, that we see displayed in Psalm 46 that gives us words for those seasons of trouble. So let's read it together. Psalm 46, starting with verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble as it is swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning where we can come together as brothers in Jesus, Your people that we might have fellowship, that we might enjoy a good meal together, and we might hear of Your Word. But Lord, we pray that we just don't hear it. That we're not just informed, but that we truly are transformed by Your life-giving Word. Lord, I pray that You would speak through me, Your broken vessel, that You would make clear what I confused, and that You would calm us, that You would cause us to be still, that our trust might grow in You in times of trouble. We pray this in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. You may know that Psalm 46 is the basis of the hymn that we just sang, Martin Luther's Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's really interesting studying Martin Luther. The verse that's most commonly associated with Martin Luther is Romans 1.17. That's the verse that converted him, right? And you know his story, most of us. Uh, Before he was converted, he was a nervous wreck. He was constantly afraid of God's wrath, what might happen to him. I mean, he was just a miserable wretch, but then he was converted by Romans 1.17 and it brought him great peace. If Romans 1.17 was his life's verse, Psalm 46 was his life's chapter. Because even after he was converted, he was still a miserable, miserable wretch. He still suffered from anxiety. He still suffered from depression. 
right? Um, most of the days of his life, there was someone trying to murder him. So he was always on the run. Actually, too, if you look at his biographies, he was also worried about the Reformation itself. He loved the church. He only wanted to reform the church. He was afraid what might happen to the church. So that was really on his mind always. Furthermore, he had terrible health. And by his own pen, he says he was routinely oppressed by demons. He had a very difficult life. But it was during those times that he would look to his very best friend, Philip, and said, we must sing the 46th chapter. During the weakest the most terrifying moments of his life, he would sing Psalm 46, and what we have now is the mighty fortress of our God is what he sang. And the reason he sang it is because he needed to be constantly reminded of who God is and what God has done, because once he does, that produces for him a bold and defiant faith in the present. Friends, I don't care what your trouble is. I don't care what keeps you up with worry at night, whether if it's because of you or someone else, whether it's something that's happening on the outside of you or a battle that rages within your heart, whatever it is, when you remind yourself of who God is and you rest in what God has done, even though there's not a safe haven in this world, we are reminded of what Luther's saying, there is safety in the mighty fortress of our God. And that's what we're going to be looking at. There's a lot of stuff in Psalm 46. We're just going to just attack it full tilt, but there's three major points. One, we need to remember who God is. Two, we need to rest in what God has done. And thirdly, we need to behold Christ. Let's start with number one. We see this in verses one through three. We are reminded of who God is. Now, like I said, this passage refers to a very specific point in history, a season of trouble of the Israelites. Assyria was on the horizon, right? But if you look at verses two through three, the author uses this, this, this cosmic scope language. Right, where it's, it's so large, in fact, each of us could read our own situations, our own worries, right into the text. Look what he says in verses 2 through 3. He says, The earth gives way, the mountains tumble, the seas roar and foam. He could have easily said, Hey guys, look, the Syrians are right over there and they're not happy. He could have just named them, but he doesn't. He uses this cosmic language to describe the underlying reason of why this trouble and this conflict is here in the first place. Essentially what he is doing by using that language is describing Genesis 1 in reverse. All the distinctions between land and sea that God established in creation has become unmade because of the fall. It's essentially the unraveling of Genesis 3, the fall, the result of that. Yes, there are real people there, but the reason that they're there wanting to murder us is because of the fall. In other words, because of the fall, sin, hate, evil, injustice, oppression, Conflict and trouble has entered the world. Whatever it is that assails you, whatever it is that attacks you, whatever it is that you fear is there because of Genesis 3 in the fall. What's really interesting, though, um, the author doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that. I mean, this is some serious stuff. It's some scary stuff. But he only spends two verses talking about it. In fact, it's not even the first thing that he mentions. What is the first word that he mentions in Psalm 46? What's the first word? What is it? He mentions God first and foremost. And friends, that is good news. There's a lesson to be learned there. And what is that lesson? The Psalter writer is saying, do not waste time wallowing in self-pity. Do not waste time searching for help in the things of this world. Don't even waste time of fixing your eyes upon whatever your trouble is. Take it to God because He is the only one that can help you. Everything else is a waste of time. 
There's a lot of chapters in the Psalter that talk about what it means to trust God. This is not that. This is a chapter that shows us why God is worthy of our trust. And there's three things he tells us about God. First and foremost, God is our refuge. You can trust God, friends, because he is your refuge. I love this word. It's talking about the protective power of God. Refuge literally means to take shelter in. Uh, I grew up in Germantown. And back in, I think it was either the summer of 94 or summer of 95, I can't remember, there was a string of tornadoes that came through Memphis. They skipped Memphis, landed in Germantown and Carville. Do I remember that? It was almost every weekend, it seemed. And every, every time that we, the, the sirens went off, the, the television station would say, hey, get in a closet, better yet, get in a tub, because that thing's coming. And that's what we all did. I was the first one into the tub, you know? <laughs> Until that one big tornado came. It was like an F4. And it just demolished Houston High School. There was a house a couple streets over. It just split it in half. It looked like a doll's house. After that, everyone in Germantown said, you know what? I think we need more than a tub. In fact, that summer, all the new houses that were being built had steel-reinforced rooms or a storm shelter attached to it. You know why? Because they knew they needed something more than a tub. Just like when you were in first grade, old-timers, and your teacher said, hey, the Russian bombs might come, so let's go ahead and get under our desk with our social studies book over our head. You know, y'all still believed in Santa Claus in the first grade, but down deep in your heart, you know, you need something more than your math textbook to protect you from a bomb, right? Of course. It's amazing how this world teaches us to trust in silly things. This is what the author's saying. He's saying, don't waste your time trusting in things that can't save you. You need something bigger and better. You need a storm shelter. You need a bomb shelter. You know what you need from the trouble in this world? You need God. Not your bank account, not your know-how, not your resume, not even your friends and family. Don't go to them first. Go to the Lord. And look how beautifully it describes us. It says God is our refuge. It does not say that God will provide for you shelter. It says that God himself is the one in whom we take shelter in. And this is why we can trust God. Because the God who created the stars and put all of the atoms in place, he is the one who in love offers himself to you as refuge. Why, oh why, do we waste time going to other places? God is our refuge. Secondly, God is our strength. A lot of um, scholars looked at this, and they say to themselves, you know, I used to say to myself until I studied a little bit further, that what this is saying is that God gives us strength in times of trouble. He will empower us. He'll give us courage. And that's not altogether wrong, but I think after further study, that's not what the writer is saying. I think he's saying something much better and bigger than that. I think what the author is saying is, God is your strength when you are weak. It's not that he's just going to make it stronger, but rather God is your strength. He is the one that you lean on in times of trouble and of weakness. Why do I say that? Look at verses 2 and 3. If those things are actually happening, I don't care how strong you are. You are going to tumble like a pile of bricks. Dan Burns is the manliest man I know. I feel like a little girl when I'm around down. He emasculates me because he climbs mountains usually before I eat breakfast and wake up, okay? He's a tough guy. However, if he's climbing a mountain and these things start happening, if that mountain starts to shake, I don't care how awesome Dan is, Dan's going down. There are certain things that will happen to you, certain things that will happen to those that you love that you're just not equipped for. That we're not equipped. It doesn't matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible we know. It doesn't matter how faithful we are. We're just simply not strong enough. But the author is saying, God is your strength. 
when you don't know what's going on, when you can't make heads or tails, when you're just at your ropes in, God is your strength. In times of weakness, when you don't have words to say, when you don't know what to do, God is your strength. Lastly, it says God is a very present help in trouble. There's some great words in this passage, or in this verse, rather. Trouble and very present help. Trouble. Well, that word means it's like a confined, dark space. All right, it's something that you can't escape from. It's like a straitjacket. Now, we've been in troubles like that where we just can't seem to find a way out. We're stuck here, and we feel like we're going to be there forever. We can't see. It's hard for us to even see the presence of the Lord, right, during those times. That's what it's talking about with trouble. But then we get that phrase, very present help. Very present What that saying is, is that God, who is always with you, is exceedingly near during those times that you feel like you're in a straitjacket. Do you remember Psalm 23? It's one of our favorite passages when we're going through times of distress. David speaks of God in the third person. He says God is, he's our shepherd. He speaks of God as a third person. He's describing God until he gets to the passage, or the verse rather, where he says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He quits talking about God in the third person there, and he starts talking about God in the second person. He says, God, you're my shepherd, but when I go through the valley of shadow of death, what does he say? You are with me. As if he's saying, God, I know you're with me always. You're omnipresent. But I'm really going through the thick of it. You are right by my side. And he's right by your side too. Now what's amazing is this, that the author tells us all these things about who God is but not just so that we would be smarter Christians. He intends for it to come down into our hearts. He wants to evoke a response. And what is that response? The only response, if these things are true of God, is that we must trust him in times of trouble. That's our application point for this first section. We must trust God. Look at verse 2. He says, because of these things are true of God, therefore we will not fear. He says, therefore we will not fear. Okay, because these things are true, we're not going to be afraid. Now, of course, you and I are not supermen. There are things that happen to us and those that we love that will cause us to quake in our shoes. We're not perfect. We're not supermen. But however, it says because these things are true, we will not fear as God's people. How do we become unafraid? It's not mystical. We simply choose not to be afraid. This is what the writer says. He says, therefore, we will not fear. Will is a word of volition. I'm deciding not to be afraid. I'm going to defy whatever it is that's standing against me in the church. I will not be afraid of that. Just like in Christ, we have his joy and his peace. You and I can decide to be at peace and have joy because Christ has made it abundantly available to us. That's why Christians can be joyous in seasons of sadness. We can choose that. This is what the psalmist is saying. We can choose not to be afraid because of who God is. However, this has nothing to do with positive thinking. It has nothing to do with us sticking our head in the sand and pretending like whatever it is isn't there. And the chapter in uh, 2 Chronicles that describes this whole thing, Hezekiah goes to this people of Israel and tells them to not be afraid of the Assyrians, be courageous. But when he says that, he's not telling them just to be positive thinkers. He's not telling them to go to a self-help program. He says you can be courageous. Why? Later says, because God is on our side. That's why we can be courageous. It's what Paul says in Romans 8. 
If God is for us, who could be against us? Well, friends, there's a lot of things that are against us, namely Satan himself. But what Paul is saying is, if God is for us, who the heck cares who's against us? Because God is with us. Y'all might remember the, uh, the conversation that John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, called the golden mouth preacher, had with the empress of the Byzantine Empire in the 5th century. Uh, she was persecuting him because he's a preacher and he was causing trouble. And she goes to him and she says, if you don't stop preaching and saying all these things, I'm going to just kick you out of the kingdom. And that started a conversation. I want to read that conversation to you. She says, I will banish you. He replies, you cannot banish me. For this world is my father's house. She says, well, then I'm going to kill you. He says, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures and your riches. No, you cannot, for my true treasure is in heaven And my heart is there also. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. He says, no, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there's nothing that you can do to harm me. It's the very same thing that we're seeing happening in China right now with our brothers and sisters there who are experiencing heavy persecution, people being drugged from their homes. Uh, They asked for the Western church to pray for them, and they did not say, please pray that we would be delivered from this. They prayed that their witness would shine all the more brighter. They're choosing not to be afraid because of who God is. John Chrysostom Chrysostom chose not to be afraid because of who God was. We're called not to be afraid because God is with us. But friends, if I can be honest with you, I often don't have that faith. I hope to have that faith where I'm never afraid when those things tower above me, things that I can't control. But I'm not. I'm fearful all the time. And I'm quite certain there's many of you in here, too, that, that grow fearful because of things in your life. But, friends, the great news of the gospel is that God, is, God loves you still. That's why he gives us Psalm 56. Psalm 56, by the way, still commands us to have bold, defiant faith. But this is what it says in verse 3. But God, when, I'm, when I am afraid... I will trust in you still. God, you are with me. What can man do to me? But when I am afraid, you are with me still. That is to say, God, I know that I have absolutely no reason to be afraid and to worry about the things in this life. I know there's things that are beyond my control that are more powerful than me, but I know I have no reason to be afraid of those things because you are with me. However, when I am afraid, you welcome me still. And God, he welcomes you too. I don't care what your trouble is. I don't care if it's something that you started, something that someone else has done to you or someone that you love. I don't care if it's on the inside of you, something that you're struggling with. God is our refuge, our strength, and a very present help in trouble. And he calls us to himself. When we remember that, it's an application of what Todd taught us last week. When we abide in God's word and marinate in it, which is what this psalmist is telling us to do by recounting God's attributes back to himself, when we do that, it stokes our faith and our trust in God. Especially during those seasons of trouble when we do not know what to say. Remember who God is. Secondly, in verses 4 through 11, after we're reminded of who God is, like we saw in the life of Hezekiah and Luther, The psalmist reminds us of what God has done. You see this in verses 4 through 11. Really what the psalmist wants for us in this section is that he wants us to see that whatever our issue is, whatever keeps us up at night in fear, 
He needs us to see and wants us to see that whatever that thing is, no matter how big and horrible it is, it pales in comparison. It's completely out of proportion to the power of the living God and his power to remedy those things and to care for us in the midst of those things. He's essentially saying there's going to be things that you can't handle, things that are going to tear at your flesh. But nevertheless, rest in what God has done and has promised to do. He gives us three things that God has done for his people. First and foremost, God provides for us his presence. Now, if you look at verse 6, after this section, we see that that threat is still there, which reminds us that God has never promised that we would not uh, experience trouble and conflict in this life. But in verse 5, however, he does promise that in the midst of those conflicts, he is in our midst. He gives us his presence. He's not some transcendent God that started the clock and just left. He is with us, especially in the midst of conflict and trouble. There's a few things about God's presence that we need to see. First and foremost, it satisfies us. We see this in verse 4. He says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Notice the contrast between the water imagery in verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 is talking about the chaotic sea that foams and roars, which is talking about those things on the outside of us. But then in verse 4, it talks about the stream which makes the people of God glad. The stream which, by the way, was in the center of Jerusalem. If you look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, it tells us there was no natural resource of water in Jerusalem itself. So Hezekiah had an underground aqueduct from the Gahan River, 1,700 miles away, built, that took water right up into the center of Jerusalem. Okay, so the Assyrians, when they gathered their troops and surrounded Jerusalem's walls, their thought was, okay, we're just going to starve them out. And three days without water, they're going to beg to be our slaves. Little did they know, they had an endless supply of H2O right in the center of Jerusalem. And so, of course, the Jews were very thankful that God had provided for them this sustenance that nourished them, right, and satisfied them in the midst of warfare. But more than that, there's a theological significance for this river. There's an actual river, but there was a theological significance of this river. That river reminded them of the river of life in the Garden of Eden. The river of life that was synonymous with God's presence, God dwells with his people. He dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's the river of life that gave them life and nourished them and sustained them and satisfied them. Not only them, but all of creation. It reminded them of God's sustaining and nourishing presence. That's why in Psalm chapter 1, the writer says this, Blessed is the man who delights in God, who dwells in his law, for he is like a tree planted by streams of water. When the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket, that's my paraphrase, it says that person who is planted by that stream of water will yield fruit in its seasons, whose leaves do not wither, who in all he does prospers. So that's saying that, 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 that God's people, while the rest of the world is crumbling away, and even in the darkest seasons and in the driest seasons of a Christian's life, in God's people's lives, they are satisfied on the inside because God is with them, flowing in and through them, and nothing can stop its flow. God's presence nourishes his people. Secondly, it sustains us. In verse 5, God is in the midst of his people. They shall not be moved. You read this and you think to yourself, what, in the midst of their pain and suffering and anguish, how are these dudes going to survive? Well, he gives us the answer. God is in their midst. That's how they're going to survive. God's in their midst. And when God dwells with his people, ain't nobody going to snatch them out of his hands. 
When God dwells with his people, it essentially it vindicates them as being God's people. That's why the exile was such a big deal. All right, when God brings us back into his presence, it vindicates us as his people, and we know that victory is with us. Back in the Old Testament, God went with uh, Joshua into the promised land and the conquest narratives. Before they enter, Joshua is a little nervous. And this is what God says, just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. No one's going to be able to stand against you, Joshua, and I will never forsake you. Because when God is with his people, though the earth shakes, we shall not be moved. But notice what it says here. It says, when morning dawns, God will help us. And verse 1, when it talks about the availability of God's help, verse 5 talks about the perfect timing of God's help. Morning dawns. Ancient battles usually took place when morning dawned. Right? Because the invading army that's been besieging whatever town that they're besieging, right? They knew at dawn they would be at their weakest and most vulnerable. They've been in there starving. At dawn, they're going to be weak and vulnerable. They're not going to expect it, so we're going to attack them then. God says he helps his people when morning dawns. What does that mean? I think it means that when we are at our weakest and most vulnerable, that's when we've exhausted all of our resources and we've stopped looking for help in the things of this world. It is then that the help of the helpless helps his people. God is always with us, but I don't know about you, but there's a lot of places I go to before I go to God. And when you're done looking in those places, the author says that is when the help of the helpless shows up. And when he shows up, friends, it is perfect timing. Sometimes God shows up before trouble. Sometimes he shows up in the midst of it. Sometimes he shows up after it. But it's always perfect timing. Time after time we see this. God showed up for Noah before the storms came, did he not? But that was perfect timing. God showed up for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fiery furnace, but that was still perfect timing. God showed up for Mary and Martha after their brother had died, but we remember that story too. That was perfect timing. You might be in a Friday, but friends, Sunday is coming, and it's going to be perfect timing. That's what God is telling us through his Writer in Psalm 46 that he is there to sustain us and to support us and to nourish us. He's always there. His presence is always there. He's, he's earnestly near those of us when we go through those times of trouble, but he will help us in our time of trouble. We just have to trust him. It might not happen when we want it, but he's always on perfect time, God's time. I'm not sure why God allows certain things to happen to you. I know why he allows certain things to happen to me. Because I know I would never know God as my strength and my refuge if he did not also take me into places of trouble. I just told you that earlier. I go to other places before God. I would not know God as my strength and as my refuge if he did not bring me through places of trouble. That's what the author of Hebrews 12 says. He says God has purposed to shake the things of this world that can be shaken in order to firm up that which lasts forever, you and me. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 after praying that God would remove his thorn, whatever his issue was, three different times, which meant that he prayed for it a lot, he came to a place of thanksgiving, thanking God for that thorn because it stripped him of every single boast he had except for his boast in the God whose power is made perfect in his weakness. God provides for us his presence. It sustains us. It nourishes us. And though the earth moves, we shall not be shaken because God is with us. Secondly, God conquers his and our enemies Friends, this is amazing if you look at verses 6 and 9, 9 in particular. We have absolutely no idea how powerful God is. 
I don't care what your issue is. It pales in comparison to the power of God. You could have an army of poets, of CGI movie directors and artists to dream up the most vile, evil, horrific enemy you can imagine. It pales in comparison to how powerful God is. It pales. It's not even fair how God fights. Look what it says. It says, though the nations rage and kingdoms totter, God utters his voice. He doesn't even give a full word. He just utters his voice and the earth melts. He demolishes our very worst nightmares by his word alone. That's how powerful your God is, friends. That's good news. All you need in this life is God's word. That's why we study it. Because nothing can stand up against it. God is powerful in His Word. That's what that third verse of our hymn this morning said. Though this world with devils filled, though the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That's what God tells us in Psalm chapter 2. He sits on His throne and laughs at the threats of His and our enemies. And if we know anything, when God laughs, ain't nothing funny. Nothing can stand up against God. He causes the earth to melt. Martin Luther was a weird guy. He said he was oppressed by demons. Lots of writings about that. In one biography, he said he actually stayed up at night and flatulated in order to mock his demon oppressors. And as he did that, he would say, have your last laugh now, demons, because on one day I'm going to judge you alongside the Christ. He's a very weird guy that he did that. But you see his point. Whatever it is, whatever it is that haunts you, whatever it is that keeps you up, whatever it is that has attacked you and attacks those that you love, will not have the last word. God does. And he will unmake all of his and our enemies with the power of his word, just as in his power he formed the world. He will unmake all that battles against it. If not this day on the day to come. He is powerful in his word. He destroys his and our enemies. And because of that, he affects peace in verse 10 and 11. Because of how powerful God is, He affects peace. He brings peace. He establishes peace. He says, be still and know that I am God. That's their double meaning there. Primarily, this is what it means. It's a warning. It's a warning shot against the bow of the face of the world. He's saying, kingdoms, quit your tottering. Quit your clamoring. Quit trying to find strength within yourself and within the things of this world. Quit trying to dominate others to exalt yourself. I am God and I will destroy you with my very own voice. This is a, this is a, a time of negotiation, a negotiated peace where God says, listen, there's a time of repentance right now. Lay down your weapons, take a knee, bow, and know that I am God. There is no help without me. There is much to fear without me, but with me you have absolutely nothing to fear. So come to me, world. That's what he is saying right there. But friends, this is also a call to the church to be at peace. For those of us who are in Christ, who are in fellowship with God, this is a call for you and I to be at peace. Listen, the reason that we spend so much time investing in mindless activities, the reason that we try to amuse ourselves to death, the reason that we allow things to rob us of our sleep out of worry is because we have allowed those things to become bigger than God. And what the writer here is saying, it, these amazing realities of God, these life-altering realities of His power, of His sovereignty over the nations, and His coming kingdom of righteousness and peace, those things will not hit home in us. They will not hold us, they will not shape us if we do not enter into the stillness before God. 
And how could they? We spend so much time looking elsewhere, but it's when we're still before God that these amazing truths and amazing realities become still. When we become still, they hit us hard. And as they do, it gives us a bold, defiant peace in the present. Elizabeth Elliot had that peace. Y'all remember her. She's a famous missionary married to the famous missionary Jim Elliot. She experienced a lot of suffering in this life. Her first husband was murdered by those he evangelized. Her second husband was slowly eaten away by cancer. This is what she said. She said, when Jim died, everything dependable in my life gave way, just like the mountains were falling and the earth reeled. In such a time, it was a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, I know one thing is not my God. We must be still, she says. God is God whether we know it or not, but it infuses strength into our faltering spirits to rest on that truth. The truth of who God is and the truth of what God has done. When we remember that and rest in it, it gives us a bold and defiant faith in the present. Psalm 46 calls us to trust in God, but friends, how can we know that we can trust God? How can we know the promises in Psalm 46 are true? I'll tell you how we know. Because God became man. This isn't a pipe dream. These aren't just these airy little promises that we, like atheists would say, is just the God of the gap philosophy. That's not what this is. God became man, so we know these things are true. The only verb in this passage, the only command that God gives us in Psalm 46 is to behold, which means to observe. That's our only action, to observe the divine action of God. So back in the Old Testament, those who read this, back in the Old Testament times, they were called to observe God's divine action in delivering the people from the Assyrians. Remember what God did then, and therefore you can trust him to be faithful to you now. And for us as Christians in this New Testament era, we are called to observe God's divine action too, but we're called to observe the great act of deliverance that all those smaller acts of deliverance pointed to, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, when we are still before God, behold the Christ that Psalm 46 is about. Psalm 46 drips with Jesus. I know we're running late, so we're just going to go fly through this really quick. Jesus fulfills Psalm 46. Time and time again, we are told that God is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is with us. It says God is with you over and over and over again. How can we trust that God is with us? This is how you can trust. Because you did not go to God in faith. He first came to you. The word for with us in the Hebrew is Emmanuel. Right, which is the same root word for the Greek word that we see in Luke and in Matthew when the angel came to Mary, says, you will bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel. God is with us. How can we trust that God is with us even in the thick of things? Because our God is the same God who dwelt with his disciples in the upper room. How can we know that God is with us? Because God is the same God that has given us his spirit so that we can be with him even after he is gone. He is the same God who walks in and out of the lampstands protecting the seven churches as we see in Revelation. He is the same God that says to us, when two or three are gathered in my name, know that I am in your midst, including amen breakfast. He is the same God that says, I am your refuge for all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. That is why we can trust the promises of Psalm 46 because God became man. And Christ is with us, Emmanuel. Secondly, it's not even, that's not even the half of it. Look at the river. From the garden to the aqueduct in Jerusalem, God set before his people a fountain of living water. 
Where else have we seen that imagery? In the Gospel of John, where Jesus set before the Samaritan woman a well of living water. And this is what he said. He said, whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. The water I shall give him a well of spring. A well springing into everlasting life. This is why Christians, during the hardest seasons of life, during the darkest moments, when everything just seems to be crumbling around us, has a crooked smile on his face as if he knows the secret to life. As if he knows that he's going to be okay and all things are going to be okay. Why? Because Christ is dwelling in his heart, flowing through his heart, in and through him, with the everlasting water of life. He is with us, nourishing us and sustaining us. Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 46. The psalmist also said, God affects peace, that all of our enemies are subject merely to his voice, and that one day he will obliterate all that stands against him, his church, and us as individuals. He brings peace, God does. How? Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born. The government is upon his shoulders He'll be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, church, and do not be afraid. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world, make no mistake about it, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he's overcome me too. And if you're a Christian, he's overcome you as well. How does he do that? That last title ascribed to God, God of Jacob. I love it. First off, it says Lord of hosts. What that's talking about is God's mighty power and authority as the commander of the armies of heaven. That God is also the God of Jacob. That's a covenant title, a covenant name, talking about how he enters into relationship, into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. But I love the fact that it says God of Jacob and not God of Abraham. Or not God of Isaiah. Or God of Paul. Or God of Luther. Or God of John Chrysostom. Or God of Elizabeth Elliot. I'm so thankful it didn't say that. I'm so thankful it said God of Jacob because I'm a lot like Jacob. Y'all remember who Jacob was? Jacob was a miserable cheat and a liar. And he struggled to trust God his entire life. He did nothing did nothing, deserved nothing, yet still God entered into his life. In the midst of his backsliding, God embraced him and transformed this dirty, rotten Jacob into Israel. God loves Jacobs. God loves you and God loves me too. So much so that he sent his son into the world that so should whoever believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. By the very same word that God established the heavens and the earth, And put his stamp on of approval on it by saying, it is finished. The incarnate word redeemed the world and gave the very same stamp of approval while hanging on the cross by saying, it is finished. That is how he conquers you. That is how he conquers the world. God has destroyed all of the ancient powers of Satan, sin, and death through the death and resurrection of his son. Death is dead and Christ is one, friends. And he has promised When he returns, Emmanuel, God with us, he'll bring shalom with him. The reason Martin Luther said that he sang Psalm 46 in those moments is because he needed to be reminded each and every day that God will preserve his church and his people. And this is his quote, against all fanatical spirits, the the gates of hell, 
the hatred of the devil, and all assaults of the world, flesh, and sin. He needed to be reminded that God was protecting him and will preserve him from those things that were much bigger than Luther. And friends, so do we. We, When we remember who God is and what he has done, when we are still before him, behold Christ, the one who's already done it for you. And as you do, whatever you fear, fear you have will give way to a bold and defiant faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel that we do not deserve, the gospel that we did not achieve, the gospel that we did not earn, but yet the one you gave us in love. Lord, you have conquered our hearts. You have brought us into yourself for relationship. You are with us. You are a refuge. You will sustain us even in the worst of days when it seems like there is no hope. We know that for you are on our side. We have no reason to fear. Lord God, help us to abide in your word, to have that hope each and every day as we live by faith, as we await the day that Christ returns and makes all things new. We love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen.